we're going to be looking at uh, salvation into the kingdom of God. Now, I will define what I mean by that expression, the kingdom of God, because uh, the average believer has the concept that there is but just one kingdom. And uh, the average concept of that is uh, it is the kingdom of heaven. We have eternal life and we're going to live forever and ever in the eternals. Now that has naturally a truth to it. But what we want to understand is that Jesus spent most of his ministry teaching and preaching concerning the messianic kingdom. Why did he spend most of his time? Because when Jesus first came to this earth, he said, I have not come but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And Jesus began his ministry, especially the teaching ministry among his own Jewish people. In fact, when he commissioned the disciples to go out and to preach the gospel, he said, go not the way of the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, what kingdom were the house of Israel looking for? They were looking for the kingdom of Messiah. For years, for centuries, they had listened to the prophetic utterances of the great prophets of old and how that they taught about the coming kingdom, the coming messianic reign when Messiah would rule all nations upon the face of the earth. That is why the disciples repeatedly uh, said uh, to Jesus, is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they had the notion that they were the nation that God had set aside to rule the nations of the earth uh, and how that one day Messiah would come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, and he would rule and reign over the nations of the earth, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel when the kingdoms of this world uh, will become the kingdoms of his Christ. And so they were looking for a Messiah to come and establish a kingdom. That was the kingdom that they were looking for. And so when Jesus came the first time after the order of Aaron as a high priest and not as a king, they were somewhat mystified and thought this cannot be the Christ because they were expecting the Christ to set up a kingdom form a great army, overthrow Roman tyranny and deliver once again the kingdom back to Israel. But when Jesus formed no army, when he formed no political organization and that he willingly was submitting his life into the hands of his captors to lay down his life for the sacrificial redemption of mankind, they thought this cannot be the Messiah. They were looking for a king that was going to rule and reign, not a priest that was going to be crucified upon a cross. And that is why they crucified him. Because he claimed to be the son of God and they crucified him for blasphemy. But because they were looking for that kingdom, Jesus therefore spent most of his ministry talking therefore about the messianic kingdom, the messianic reign, referring to the time that he would return to this earth a second time and as a result he would then establish the throne here on earth. I want to take you to a scripture just to establish this in uh, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Revelation 3 and verse 21. 
Now, this is the final of the seven letters to the seven churches which are recorded in the chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. This particular letter is the letter to the Laodicean church. Now, like all of these letters, he introduces himself, then he brings them a word of rebuke or correction should they need it, then he gives them remedial counsel, and then he brings a promise to the overcomer. He brings a promise to the overcomer. I want you to notice his words to the overcomer that he promises to the overcomer in this Laodicean church. We pick it up in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now note especially verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and am sat down with my father on his throne. In that verse, I want you to notice two thrones. The throne of the father and the throne of the son. Let's read that verse one more time. To him who overcomes. Now, he does not say to him who is born again. This is not a package deal to somebody just because they are a Christian. But it is to a particular type of Christian that Jesus now addresses uh, um, the promise. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Jesus refers to his own personal throne. Sit with me on my throne. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father on his throne. So here we see Jesus alludes to two thrones, his own personal throne and also the throne of his father. We must therefore distinguish between these two thrones that represent two kingdoms. The first is the throne of the Father that we want to look at. What do we mean by the throne of the Father? The throne of the Father is the authority of the Father, which is an eternal throne or an eternal authority. For God has neither beginning nor ending of days. He is the eternal God transcending all of creation. And God rules supreme in the heaven of heavens, always has, always will, is today and always will. He is an eternal God. But during a specific period of time, which we call the thousand-year reign of Christ, when Jesus will return to this earth, and parabolically speaking, Jesus intimated this to the nation of Israel and to the disciples when he said a certain man owned a vineyard, let it out, went away to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. was a prophetic word from Jesus himself that he himself must go away, leave his disciples for a time, which he warned them he would have to do, but the day would come when he would return and he would return with a kingdom. Now, when we say that Jesus returns with a kingdom, do we mean that he returns with a great territory of land? Not at all. Do we mean he returns with a a great host of people? Not at all. 
But he returns with a mandate of authority, a mandate of governmental authority. You see, when Jesus came the first time after the order of Aaron, he came with a spiritual mandate of spiritual authority. And that authority you and I have today because we have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and we have been brought into the kingdom of light. We have been translated from darkness into light. And therefore we are now already citizens of the heavenly kingdom. We are born again. We have eternal life. That is a gift of God by grace. And that brings us into citizenship of the heavenly kingdom. Therefore, we also have a mandate of a spiritual authority that Jesus Christ purchased for us, that whatever we bind here on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose here on earth will be loosed in heaven, and so on. In his name, we can lay hands on the sick, and we can cast out devils, all in the name of Jesus. Why? Because we have that spiritual mandate from the heavenly throne of which we are already citizens that throne to which we can come boldly to at any moment uh, of any hour of any day that we might find mercy in our hour of need. But Jesus is coming back very soon, not just with a spiritual mandate, but with a governmental mandate. For he comes back the second time, not after the order of Aaron, but he comes back after the order of Melchizedek. And the Melchizedekian priesthood is... uh, a priest and a king amalgamated together in the one off uh, in the one office thus giving jesus not only a spiritual mandate but a governmental mandate and brethren i want you to understand that the church although the church today has a spiritual mandate it has no governmental mandate you go and tap your uh, prime minister or your president uh, on the shoulder and tell him that the church is going to take over the government of this country and you'll end up behind bars. Why? Because uh, the church has no governmental authority on the earth at this present time. Why? Because Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning not of this age. That is the dispensation of the church era. But very soon Jesus will return with that kingdom, a mandate of governmental authority, and he will establish his throne on earth and he will rule and reign the nations of this earth for a period of 1,000 years, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel when Daniel prophesied and said, for the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of his Christ. Now, what is the relevancy of that to us. We use the term gospel. Usually when we say, would you preach the gospel, we mean something around John 3.16. That is, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and whomsoever believes in him and confesses his sin and receives Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior will not perish but have everlasting life. That is usually what we refer to as the gospel. But I want you to realize that the word gospel simply means God's spell. God's spell. That was the old English version of the, of which we get the, derived the word gospel. God's spell. Meaning to say, God's will. In other words, good news. The good news of salvation or the gospel 
or God's spell of uh, salvation. And that is what we mean when we talk about the gospel, the gospel of salvation. But the word gospel only means good news. And uh, more time than not, in the New Testament, we hear the term, the gospel of the kingdom. Not the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom. However, in the minds of many evangelicals, uh, the gospel of salvation and the gospel are one of the self-same things because they only ever see one kingdom. That is, when we're born again, we have a package deal uh, into citizenship with God on all aspects. And therefore, because they only see one kingdom, therefore the gospel of salvation and the gospel of the kingdom are synonymous. But I want you to realize they are not. The gospel of salvation is the good news of being born again and being a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom was to be judged worthy of entrance into the messianic reign with Christ, to rule and to reign with him. Now, this is what Jesus was referring to here in Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes. Now, one does not have to be an overcomer to be born again. One and only has to be repentant and confess one's sins and acknowledge them and humbly ask God's forgiveness on the basis of the redemptive blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary's cross. That is what is required for eternal life. But entrance into the gospel or entrance into the messianic reign of Christ, one must be judged worthy of it. One must be deemed to have been an overcomer. To what is the believer called to overcome? The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus claimed also to be an overcomer and is seated with his father on the right hand of the throne of his father's kingdom on the basis that he was an overcomer. Jesus did not inherit the throne just because he was the son of God. He inherited it because he was an overcomer. He overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil, the same as you and I are called to do. So on that basis then, we stand to inherit a position on Christ's throne. This will distinguish a dividing line between two groups of Christians, those who are heirs of God and those who will be joint heirs of God. Now then, I want you to see that at the coming of the Lord, that's when we will discover whether or not we are an heir of God or a joint heir. Now that word joint heir is only mentioned in one space uh, or one place in the New Testament. And it happens to be Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, where Paul, exhorting the Christians in Rome, writes to them and he said, as children of God, we are heirs. And he establishes that fact. As children of God, we are heirs of God. That means to say, those of us that are born again, we are heirs of God. We will have an inheritance. But then he goes on to say, and joint heirs, if so be that you suffer with him. Joint heirs, if so be that you suffer with him. Now, a joint heir is conditional. It is conditional on being an overcomer. That is, uh, 
that we suffer. What do we suffer? We suffer the uh, persecutions, the tribulations, the trials, the temptations uh, of this world. And if we endure and are judged as an overcomer, then we will uh, inherit not only our own inheritance, but we will inherit, inherit a portion of Jesus' inheritance. Now, what did Jesus inherit? He inherited the throne. And that throne he brings to this earth. And those who are overcomers, he promises to rule and reign with him, to sit with him on his throne, ruling over the nations of the earth, as he had promised Peter and the disciples. Uh, He that has forsaken or left uh, um, wives and children, mothers and fathers, houses and lands for my sake uh, shall be rewarded a hundredfold and shall sit with me on 12 thrones ruling over or judging the 12 tribes of Israel and the subsequent nations uh, under them. That was the promise. All right, but to be judged worthy of that, to be a joint heir is conditional. Heirs of God by being born again and joint heirs, if so be that we suffer with him. One other scripture just to support that principle, and I quote from 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and it says in verse 11 and 12, this is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure or as the old King James puts it, if we suffer, we will, uh, we shall also reign with him. But if we deny him, he will deny us. Now then, that means to submit, to submit and bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and suffer his will to be done in and through our lives and be judged an overcomer. And that will require a certain amount of suffering. But if we deny him, that is, if we deny him lordship and we do not bow to that will, then he will deny us. Not deny us salvation, but he will deny us a place on his throne to rule and reign with him. Keep it in the context of the subject matter that is being discussed. All right. This takes us back then to what is God's eternal purpose for mankind. Why did God create man? This question is often asked in many a Bible college or Bible seminary. Why do you think God created man? Whenever I get a new class of students, I will ask them that very question. Some will say he created us uh, to praise him. Yes, but God had a host of heavenly angels by the millions that were praising him. Why did he need somebody else to praise him? Now, true, God does delight in the praises of his people. He does. But that's not the primary reason why God created man. Some say he created man for his good pleasure. But then God had good pleasure in creating everything. Why specifically man? God did have pleasure in creating man, yes, but that's not the primary purpose. What is the primary purpose of why God created man? Let the Bible answer this question and let us go back to Genesis right at the very beginning there and we'll go right back to Genesis uh, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and we will read verse 26, verse 27 and verse 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created he, him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Let us take a close look now and exegete these three verses of Scripture. All right, it begins with God being vocal. And God said, and what did he say? He said, let us. Who is the us here? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the eternal triunal God. And uh, he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. And there we answer our question. Why did God create man? He created man to reign. He created man to rule. He created man to have dominion. That was the primary purpose for which God created man. Now do you see why it's important we understand that the overcomer at the closing of the ages, when Jesus shall return and establish his throne here on the earth, that why it is important that we understand that the overcomer will rule and reign with Jesus Christ because that then will fulfill the purpose for which God created man in the beginning. Because when we talk about God being a God of purpose, we've got to understand from Ephesians how that in the third chapter it speaks of God's purpose being an eternal purpose. And if God's purpose is an eternal purpose, that means it is not subject to change. For that which is subject to change cannot be eternal, because if it changes, it ceases to be eternal. Therefore, if God's purpose is an eternal purpose, then it cannot be subject to change. In other words, what God purposed in the beginning, uh, he will uh, bring to pass. He created man to have dominion. Therefore, God will have a people. God will have a people whom he will judge and deem worthy to inherit the throne for which they were created. And together with his son, Jesus Christ, the eternal son, they will rule and they will reign over the nations of this earth for a thousand years. And not only will they reign over the nations, but they will reign over all of creation. Because the command here included ruling over the birds of the air, the animals of the field, and the fish of the sea. And man does not have total domain or dominion over all creatures. We have domesticized a certain amount of the animal world, but you go and try and catch yourself a big Bengali tiger as a pet and see whether or not you have dominion over it or whether you have dominion over a, 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 a black-hooded cobra or, or, or something like that. You see, but the day is going to come when Jesus will return with the kingdom, and at that time the, 
the curse that was placed on the earth because of sin will be removed. Then you may have a Bengali tiger for a pet because the Bible says that the lamb will lay down with the lion and a little child shall play with a serpent and a scorpion and they will not bite nor sting and the lamb will not be terrorized by the lion. You see, because the curse will have been removed off the earth. No longer will it bring forth the thorns and the thistles which multiplies man's labor today as a result of sin. It will be a spiritual utopia that man will have the privilege of ruling over during that thousand-year reign. But the And so he said, that, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Now, verse 27 brings us to the creation of God's intended purpose. You see, we see God's intention in verse 26. Now we see the realization of that intention in verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Now I want you to notice that when God realizes his intention in verse 27, we read that God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. There is no mention of likeness. Go back to verse 26. What do we read? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But in the realization of that intention, God creates man in his image, but there is no mention of the likeness. Why? Because the man that God required could not be created. Now, let me just uh, clarify that because I can see some of you, those that are theologically trained, looking at me like a tree full of owls and and what you're thinking is, how dare I say something that God could not do? God is omnipotent. God can do anything. How can I suggest that the man that God wanted could not be created? God can create anything. He can do what he likes. That is true. But God chose it this way, and let me explain. Why do I say that the, God, that the man that God wanted could not be created? Because the man that God wanted was a man that would obey him, that a man that would would follow him and fulfill his will, not because he was forced to do so, but that he chose to do so out of freedom of choice. In other words, God required a man of obedience. And obedience is something that cannot be created. Obedience is an attitude. Obedience is the result of a choice. And God created man with a free will. And never, never, never does God ever take the freedom of man's choice away from him. That is why God would that none perish. But we know that many will. Why? Because they choose to reject what God offers them. And God does not force himself upon man. Now, God will engineer circumstances and so forth, and he can do a lot to perhaps uh, make us willing. But he does not decide for us. 
So God made man in his image. And, of course, he made man a creature of love and he made him with the freedom to choose. But having made man with the freedom to choose, God was therefore obligated, not to man because God is never obligated to man, but obligated to himself that having created a creature and giving him and given him freedom of choice, God was therefore obligated to himself to put that man in an environment where he could exercise his freedom of choice. So God planted a garden. And in that garden, God planted many trees. And he took the man that he had made and he took him on a conducted tour through that garden. He showed him all of the trees of the garden and said, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was a command. There now was the boundary lines of territorial choice. Man was forbidden to touch that tree. Now, a lot of people, when it comes to who takes the blame for man's sin, a lot of people put the blame on God, like Adam did. Adam said, it wasn't me. He said, it was that woman. And it was that woman that you gave me blaming God for giving him the woman. And the woman said, it wasn't me, it was the devil. But some people take it even further and say, well, no, 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 God was really to blame because he put the tree there. And if God hadn't have put the tree there, then man couldn't have eaten it. That is true. But what I want us to see is man, sorry, God wanted man to be an overcomer by choice of obedience. And therefore, you cannot open up an avenue of obedience without at the same time opening up a door of potential disobedience. For obedience without disobedience would have no meaning. And so on the basis of that then, the tree was there, but he said, don't touch. Just the same, we see the repeat of that, which Paul makes reference to in the Hebrew epistle when he says, we've not come to the mountain that might not be touched. You see, what does he mean by that? Because Israel were assembled at the foot of the mountain. But God said, don't touch. You see, and to be an overcomer, I want you to see, we must be exposed to the temptations of this world, but don't touch. Israel were at the foot of the mountain, but God said, don't touch. Adam was at the, at the tree of um, knowledge of good and evil, but God said, don't touch. He had access to it, but God said, don't touch. God required obedience. Adam had a choice. He could either obey God and uh, deny himself, or he could deny God and please himself. And I want you to understand, that is the essence of sin. Sin is living independent of God, living to please ourselves. We don't have to do something specifically evil to be a sinner. All we have to do is live independently of God. So Adam had a choice. He could either deny himself and please God or please himself and deny God. That was the choice. Now, why did God require obedience? Because the question that we must address is that God created man to have dominion. But the question we must look at here now Having created man to have dominion, did 
God give man dominion? No, he did not. He created man to have dominion, but he did not give man dominion. But what did he do? We read it there now in verse 28 of Genesis 1. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. He showed him the pathway on how to achieve dominion. Man was created to have dominion, but he had to achieve it by obedience. We see that systematically woven right throughout Scripture. Adam was created, we might say, by grace and by grace alone and not of works because it was God's choice to create man. Man had no say in the matter. So God creates man solely by grace. But having created man by grace, he now calls him to a walk of obedience that if he follows will lead him to the throne of authority, thus fulfilling the purpose for which God created him. We see another example of that in Abraham. Abraham was called out from his father's house, from his kindred and uh, family and what have you, by God. Why Abraham? Solely a call by grace, not because Adam was anybody, uh, sorry, Abraham was anybody specific. It was God's sovereign grace that singled out Abraham and called him. As Paul picks up this point in the fourth chapter of Romans and said that if Abraham received justification by works, he has something of to boast. But God did not justify Abraham by works, but solely by grace. Therefore, Abraham had no grounds to boast. But having having saved or, or delivered, shall we say, or called Abraham out from his country by grace, he now calls him to a walk of obedience, which James makes reference to in the fourth chapter of his epistle when he says, was Abraham justified by faith and by faith alone and not of works? And the subject matter that James is uh, is preaching on here is faith without works is dead. And he maintains Abraham was not justified by faith alone, but by works. When he had offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar, an act of obedience. So again, we see Abraham was called by grace but called to a walk of obedience. Adam was saved by grace or created by grace, I should say, but called to a walk of obedience. Israel, Israel were delivered or saved out of Egypt. How? Solely by the grace of God, by the blood of the Passover lamb. And on their exit from from Egypt, they were baptized in the water and in the cloud. But having been delivered from Egypt by grace, they were called to a walk of obedience through the wilderness. And that walk would judge them either worthy or not worthy to inherit the promised land. And through rebellion and disobedience, the majority of them perished in the wilderness and did not inherit the land for which they had been saved for. So we see salvation by or deliverance by grace 
called immediately to a life of works. That was Israel. And Paul the Apostle on two occasions, both in the Corinthian epistle chapter 10 and also in the Hebrew epistle chapters 3 and 4, cites Israel as our example that we also must walk a walk of obedience. Now then we come back to our initial deliverance from sin and this world. And I quote, of course, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now there we usually leave our memory verse and we read no further. But I want you to go on and we'll quote verse 10. See, verses 8 and 9, By grace are you say through faith, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But what about verse 10, the following verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And exactly as Adam, Abraham, Egypt, the principle applies now to the believer. Although saved by grace, we are called immediately to work. And by those works, we shall be judged. And that we see is the pattern that we see woven throughout Scripture. And uh, our born-again experience, yes, is 100% solely by grace. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But what we've got to realize is that are we called to be saved or are we saved to be called? Are we called to be saved? As Calvin would put it, making the object of our calling salvation. Therefore, because we're all saved, we've arrived at our destination, so let's just sit back, relax, and wait for God to come and collect us. You see, and that is primarily the message of the evangelical church. And I say that, I'm, a, I'm evangelical, Pentecostal through and through. Have been now for 38 years. I spent my first two years as a fundamental evangelist until I, uh, evangelical, I should say, until I was filled with the Holy Spirit and then received the left foot of fellowship out of the, um, uh, fundamental, um, um, church I was in and I became a Pentecostal 38 years ago. And so on that basis, I want you to realize that we must understand that although we are saved by grace, we are called to work. And as I said, Calvin makes the object of our calling salvation. And he says, many be called, but few are chosen. Therefore, God in his sovereign right says, I'll save you, but not you. I'll save you, but not you. Well, if God chooses not to save me, am I to be blamed? No, because I have been rejected by God. He did not give me an opportunity to be saved. If God and his sovereign rights says he won't save me. But we must let the scriptures answer this. Peter in his epistle says, and I'll ask you the question, how many, according to Peter's epistle, did the Lord want to have perish? None. Why? Because the Bible says God would that none perish. That means that Jesus died not for some, but he died for all. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his begotten son that he might, uh, you know, redeem mankind. That all men might be saved. Now we know that all men won't be. But not because God rejects them or at least that God doesn't want them to be saved. It is because they reject God's offer of salvation. So God would that none perish. So to come up with a doctrine that says uh, that he called some to be saved and not others contradicts the word of God and contradicts the character of God. So therefore, we must answer that question. Are we called to be saved or are we saved to be called? Well, we must let the scriptures answer that. Turn with me, would you please, to um, the second epistle of Timothy. The second epistle of Timothy. And uh, we're looking at chapter 1, second epistle of Timothy, and we're looking at chapter 1, and it is verse 9. We will read from verse 8. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings and remember, without those sufferings, we shall not be joined heirs with Christ. But uh, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He has saved us and he has called us. What did he do first? He saved us and then he called us. And so what we've got to establish now, to what did Jesus call us? He called us to his kingdom and glory. He called us to perfection. Now then, this brings us back to the point, why did God not put Adam immediately on the throne for which he had created him? Why did God want Adam to walk the pathway of obedience? To produce the likeness which could not be created. You see, man was made in the image of God, but he was called to develop the likeness. The likeness could not be created. It had to be developed. What was the key to develop it? A walk of obedience. And so obedience is what produces the character of God in us. This was demonstrated to us by Jesus himself. And I quote to you from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, speaking about Jesus on why he was born into this world as a little baby. Why didn't God bring him in on a golden chariot or bring him down from heaven on a golden staircase at the age of 30 and say, all right, son, you've got three and a half years, go to it, minister. No, no, no. He was born in this world as a little baby. Why? Because Jesus had to learn obedience. And we read it there in Hebrews 5.8. Though he were a son, yet learnt he obedience by the things which he suffered. And what was the result then of him learning obedience by the things which he suffered? He became perfect. He was not born perfect. He had to be perfected through a walk of obedience. Jesus had to learn obedience. That is why he claimed to be an overcomer. That is why he inherited the throne of his father because he merited the right to do so because he walked that pathway of obedience and as a result was perfected. Now he becomes the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. 
And here we introduce the salvation for mankind based on works of obedience, which we will deal about in the second session. But we will pass on from that now. He became perfect. Now you and I are called to perfection. But what is perfection? Perfection must be relative. We must give it a meaning. You see, in teaching the disciples as he began to train them on that wonderful message of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, said to them in the midst of that sermon, he said, uh, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Paul picks up the theme of perfection in the Hebrew epistle when he says, uh, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again a foundation from repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms and so on. Let us go on unto perfection. Paul himself and his own testimony in Philippians 3 said, I speak not these things as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But forgetting that which is behind me and reaching out for that which lies ahead of me, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, brethren, if there's a high calling, my mind tells me there must be a low calling. You don't have high except you have low. You don't have fat except you have thin. You don't have hot unless you have cold. You don't have small except you have big. And on the law of contrast, a high calling denotes a low calling. I want us to understand that. And Paul caught a glimpse of the high calling, the great salvation of which he writes about in the Hebrew epistle. All right, so we're called to perfection. But what is perfection? We must give it a definition. Paul himself gives it a beautiful definition in his Roman epistle. Let's go there now to uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we pick it up in verse 28. Now, this, as far as I'm concerned, is the heart of the Roman epistle. And not only is it the heart of the Roman epistle, but as far as I'm concerned, it is the very heart of God's ultimate purpose for mankind in the entire New Testament. The heart of the gospel. What does it say? Verse 28. And we know, what do we know? We know that all things, all things, just not the good things, but all things, work together for good to those who love God, And to those who are called according to his purpose. Now we were created in the purpose of God and we were called in the purpose of God. Now he created man to have dominion. But he did not give man dominion. But he called him to inherit the throne. But to qualify to inherit the throne, he had to walk a pathway of obedience. Why? To develop the character of God in his, in his life. And the character of God can only be perfected in us through a walk of obedience as demonstrated by Jesus. Why was it so important then that Adam be perfected? Because when you put somebody into a position of authority, and they have not the character to handle that authority, you open the door to corruption. Give somebody a position of authority without the character, and you open the door for corruption. And God would not allow his throne to suffer corruption. Therefore, before Adam could inherit the throne, the character of God had to be perfected in him first. 
All right, now we are saved. What for? To bring us back to where Adam was before he fell so that you and I could now move into that position of fulfilling our calling to inherit the throne. But no man, see, even in the epistles, a scripture just comes to mind, pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. What is holiness? See, a lot of people throw those two words out, holiness and righteousness, as though they are synonymous words. But I want you to understand that holiness is who God is. Righteousness is what God does. One is character, the other is conduct. Holiness is character. Righteousness is conduct. And all conduct flows out of character. And so I want us to realize then that our character will determine our conduct. And so perfection or the perfection of the character of Jesus must be perfected in us. That is our calling. And so he says all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now what is that purpose? It is to have the character of God perfected in us. That we be not only in the image of God, but we also be in the likeness of God. For which purpose man was created. All right, now what is that purpose? What is perfection? Verse 29 tells us, For whom he did foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are called to a conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, that the likeness and the character of God be perfected in us. That is what will be deemed an overcomer. Because what is it that produces that quality of character in us? It is the trials, the temptations, the tragedies, the sufferings uh, that we face in life. Because uh, it is these that uh, will produce that quality of character within us. No wonder Paul had an attitude toward these things of great rejoicing when he said, I rejoice in tribulation. How many of us can say that? But Paul did. I rejoice in tribulation. I delight, he said, in persecution. I take pleasure in mine infirmities. Why? Because he saw these as the stepping stones to rise him to greater heights in God. That the character of God might be perfected in him. Just quickly as we close, that word... That word predestination. Oh, some go back into Calvinistic theology and they say, well, God predestines some but not others. No, he doesn't. We predestine ourselves. In other words, let me put it this way. We predetermine. You see, a lot of people misunderstand this word predestination because they confuse it with predetermination. Now, what did God predestinate? He didn't predestinate you would be there or you would not be there. No, he predestinated the destination. That's why it's called a pre-destination. In other words, a destination that God pre-planned before the foundation of the world. What was that destination? To have a company of people that would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And he therefore predestined that 
destination. But does God know who is going to get there? Yes, he does. Not because he decided who would and who wouldn't. We decide that by our commitment to obedience. But God knows because he knows the choices we will make. That is why whenever you read that word uh, predestination, it's always aligned with the foreknowledge of God. Those whom he did foreknow, did he predestinate? (coughs) Because God transcends creation. He transcends time. Therefore, he knows who will arrive there and who won't. But who determines whether we do? God does not predetermine you to arrive there and predetermine you not. We decide that. How? By our choice of diligence. Our choice of diligence. Because uh, on the subject of diligence, we see that Jesus told a very simple parable of the sower. How that some seed fell upon the wayside ground, some fell on thorny ground, some fell on stony ground. Now, I want you to see there are all different types of Christians here. The seed being the word of God, all those that received the word. But some of the seed fell on good ground. Now then, three types of of, of ground brought forth no fruit. But the fourth ground brought forth fruit. Some 30, some 60, some 100. Why the difference? The ground was good, the seed was the same, sower was the same. Why did only some bring forth 30%, some 60 and some 100? Jesus said three things in his interpretation of that. Take heed to what you hear, content. Take heed to how you hear, attitude. Four, and here's the key now. To what degree you give, it'll be given back to you. He that chooses to give 30% diligence to what he hears of the word of God will bring forth 30%. He who gives 60% diligence to what he hears of the word of God will bring forth 60%. He who gives 100% diligence to what he hears of the word of God will bring forth 100%. Now the question is, who chooses our level of diligence? We do. We do. So I want you to see then that God created us to have dominion. He called us. He saved us that he might call us. Call us to where? To inherit his kingdom. To inherit the throne of Christ. We are saved by grace, but the moment we are saved, we're called to a walk of obedience. And by that walk, we will be deemed either worthy or unworthy to inherit the kingdom. So let me close this session by reading to you from Peter's challenge on this very subject. And I quote here from 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. And we will read from verse 5 just to get the theme here. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence. What does he call us to give? Diligence. Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly 
into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Brethren, that is the challenge. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For many be called, that is, many be saved, but few are chosen. Therefore, make sure you are one of the chosen.